Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 14 of Back in the Lifeboat, a podcast where we watch and recap every episode of the series Timeless. I'm Helen, and I'm here with my co-host, Heather. Hey, guys. And today we're covering season one, episode 14, The Lost Generation. And you know what we do by now. We're going to do a quick episode overview, and then we'll get into the episode breakdown. We'll go over our overall thoughts and Heather's theories for what's coming. Before we start, um, following last week and um, going through the uh, main cast credits and like their former and current projects, uh, today we're going to talk about Matt Lanter. Um, turns out Matt actually started on a reality show called Manhunt, the search for America's most gorgeous male model. He did not win. He was eliminated about halfway through, according to Wikipedia. And I mean, that's fair. We're all entitled to our wrong opinions. Um, <laughs> Sounds like I a mean, mistake on their part. Right? Have you seen the man? <laughs> I don't care who else was with it. Like, out of all the actors I can think of, he's up there. He's up there. Um, uh, Pretty early on, like, uh, some of his first... Um, acting roles. He played the president's son in Commander-in-Chief. I don't think I ever saw it. Uh, I've still seen a few episodes. I, I went back to um, kind of see Matt at this point. Oh, he's so cute. He's so small. <laughs> he's a baby. Um, and uh, I went... Uh, he had like a very small recurring role in uh, Heroes. Like he played a high school jock that was with like the um, in Aiden Panettiere school uh and I went and looked at it and it's I found a picture uh in a scene with both Hayden Panettiere is that how you say her name yeah I think so okay uh and um Danielle Sav who's on uh, station 19 uh so she was pretty young too um but like he really looked like a teenager i think he was probably in his 20s at that point though uh but he had like the very fashionable me 2000 like justin bieber haircut <laughs> that was priceless. nobody could escape that haircut nobody nobody like in this scene i almost expected him to like you know the head shake to like yep get the the um, Hair flop. The hair flop, like, out of his head. He didn't do it to my uh, disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He was on the third version of The Cutting Age. Uh, I remember the first movie. I've never watched the following, but I might go watch this one. Um, I've watched, I think think I've watched it. I couldn't have told you he was in it. I'm pretty sure he's the main because he's on the poster. Yeah, for no, the, he's like I, I, I've seen pictures of him in it, and I'm pretty sure, yeah, he's like the main male I, character. I didn't go and see, but like the poster was the the actress face and his face, so we assume they're the main couple. That would make sense. Yeah, I can't remember if that's the one with DB Sweeney in it or not. Uh, the no original idea. guy. No idea. I think it probably isn't. I think that was a follow up to the second one, and I think he was only in the second one. Hmm. Um, 
the what Matt is most recognized for, I think, uh, is his role as Liam Court in 90210, like the the Beverly Hills remake. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he was one of the main characters in that one, which I haven't seen, but I really, really need to, because like I've heard a lot of good things about it, and knowing is in it, like that's definitely a selling point. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen it. Now he was the voice of Baylor Hotner in Scooby Doo Mystery Incorporated, which is probably top, like top tier Scooby Doo, honestly. Uh, but, yes, uh, yeah. He played like a spoof of Taylor Watner, which is kind of funny yeah. to me. Uh, I always he... just assume they got like Taylor Watner to voice the the character. <laughs> I never looked at the oh, credits. Oh, I one. didn't even put it on, but he did also like a parody of. Um... Twilight. Uh-huh. I, I forgot what it's called, but I didn't put. But now I remember. Um, apparently, that was hilarious. I've never watched it, but apparently, it's hilarious. Which I have no doubt. It's Twilight. It's such an easy thing, easy thing to to parody. Really, it's almost yeah. a parody of itself when you think about it. Um, uh, but. After Timeless, mostly, he did, like, um, right now, he's doing mostly Star Wars animated show and movies, and he voices Anakin Skywalker, which is so weird, because mm-hmm. I um, I went I went and listened to, like, a couple episodes. I would have never been able to recognize his voice. Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing with, like, voice actors is they have so many different like um tones character and, repertoire yeah. i guess yeah because like i mean i know gray de la Salle, she has a lot of different characters and a lot of times you probably wouldn't recognize her yeah it's it's pretty amazing actually and even um mark hamill the guy who played luke skywalker he's a voice actor and you probably wouldn't pick up on it a lot yeah i i, I don't he think he was in scooby-doo mystery incorporated Ooh. As the crybaby clown. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think voice actors get enough credits, honestly. True. Yeah. Um, he was also like a he had a small role in like Pitch Perfect three, where he played a uh, a soldier. He was dreaming really? this I've one never too. Seen yeah, it. he was dreaming this one too. He was pretty dreamy. <laughs> Um, yeah, and then a couple other things like Jupiter's Legacy. I think that was a show that only lasted a season. And another series called Starcrossed. Um, and there there's a reason I put Starcrossed in there. I think that's the one. Um, yes, there's a reason I put it in there. Um but yeah, like he's 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 been around for a while. He's done quite a few things. He's done pretty well for himself, I gotta say, with good reasons, because pretty good actor. And mm-hmm. just so the face doesn't hurt. Um, and now that I'm done drooling over Matt Lanter, we can go into the episode of <laughs> Um, So this is a season one, episode 14, The Lost Generation. The episode description on Rotten Tomatoes was 
With the help of a new soldier, Lucien Rufus chased Flynn through Paris in 1927 on the day that Charles Lindbergh completes his transatlantic flight. A despondent Wyatt gets a visit from Agent Christopher. Ooh, they went with the XAT words. Despondent. <laughs> despondent. Uh, the episode is despondent. I can I, see it uh, a little bit. To be fair, I don't even know what that means. Um, <laughs> what? Like basically beside themselves with emotion. Okay, he would. Yeah, that, that's that might be pushing it. He was like pretty still like down on himself. Uh, yeah, but yeah, that might be pushing it a little bit. Uh, the episode aired for the first time February sixth, twenty seventeen. It was written by Ken Rotherham, uh, writing the second out of three episodes so we talked about him in the Watergate tape uh, and it was written also by David Hoffman who was also the historical consultant for the show uh, throughout uh, and that was his first that's his first out of two episodes the second one uh, will be in season two um, and I uh, so I went on his IMDb Timeless is the only TV that he's credited for. Uh, he had a couple other projects that actually seemed really interesting and that were canceled. Uh, I know one was canceled because of COVID, like during COVID for sure. Uh, and it's really too bad because when you look at what they were supposed to be, they look really interesting. Um, and uh, right now he's one of the writers on the new um, Who Killed JFK? podcast and i think did we talk about it yet but it's i don't think so i've i've listened to a couple episodes uh it's really interesting very intriguing uh and the episode is directed by craig zisk uh that we saw before um on the world's columbian exposition uh i think that's his last episode i didn't write it down for some reason you mean one of the other episodes where lucy was kidnapped and put in a dark small room no but that that's a trope <laughs> at this point we'll talk we'll talk about it <laughs> the way the way i scream um every time yeah this one yeah i think yeah that's la the last craigslist episode okay can um all right now it's time to get back in the lifeboat uh so we pick up right where we left off at the last in the last episode uh, at Kay's Cahill's house and he's just talking about how uh Rittenhouse is Lucy's legacy that's it's so creepy uh that whole scene yeah yeah well, gets... he talks about like everybody who ran away because they didn't like the idea of it and then they all came back which is what we see Lindbergh do at the end mm -hmm. so it's like what do they get told i don't that makes know. them come back um because like he also mentions because you know lucy gets gets real defensive and really mad especially when he mentions amy 
And then, like, he says, I've seen David Rittenhouse. Like, I've seen how horrible his ideas were. And Cahill goes, um, well, don't you think we've evolved by now? And I'm like, okay, but so what, what does Rittenhouse do now? Like, why yeah, do like, you think it it's for? so much better? Because, like, I'd, originally it was very much a, like, elitist almost eugenic kind of you know yeah, doctrine the same things you see her like kind of getting mad that charles Lindbergh upholds later mm -hmm, exactly so like is it that much better now <laughs> really like how yeah how good can those idea be really i don't know but yeah he's so he, he's so casual about the whole thing and i think that's really what's make it what makes it chilling for me yeah yeah it's just but also like i said like the fact that he's like yeah you always come back in the end no matter what everybody does and, and, and he, like, but why yeah, he seems really really told? sure of that because he he's not yeah. even stressed when lucy walks out he's just whenever you're ready to come back come back like i know you will yeah so it's yeah it's it's disturbing to say the least um but so Lucy walks out, and uh, we switch to Wyatt. Someone is sitting on an uh, interrogation table. Someone removes a black hood from his head. He's handcuffed to that table. It's, you know, sounds fun. Um, and I love because, like, it's supposed to be so that he doesn't know where he is, and it's all intimidating. Where it's like, nah, you turn there, you turn there, you drive like that much i heard that sound so we're here yeah it's so smart i think like the closest that well it's a national monument is mirror woods uh yosemite i'm not sure how far that is um, so i'm trying to google see what yeah i'm up. not i i can help you there because i'm not yeah i, I am there is a national park that I drove into close to there, but I could not tell you which one it was. Like it's it's, it's got all like the redwoods and stuff, but yeah, I don't know if it's the one that they went to. Yeah, I mean, the point of the matter is he's a badass, very well trained soldier, and mm -hmm. he's just super smart. He's being a real smart ass about it. Um. He's, he's definitely he's, got the affectation of like he just doesn't care anymore. He's just yeah. like, yeah, like I'm here to be punished. I accept my punishment. I deserve it. Yeah. Um, he's talking to Denise. I forgot to say that. Um, yep. and she mentions, like you said, like getting him a lawyer, but he's like, nope, I don't deserve one. I deserve whatever's coming my way. He's still yeah. very much one thousand percent is not about stealing a time machine and ten thousand percent about not saving Jessica. And also about uh causing the death of an innocent yeah, man, really. The guy, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, he at this point he's just he lost Jessica for good because he doesn't know how to get her back. And on top of that, he caused the death of Joel for nothing in his mind. So mm -hmm. yeah. And so Denise just leaves him alone in his fields. She'll be back later. Um, 
so we switched to uh, Lucy and Carol's house and they're talking about Cahill. Uh, which I forgot exactly what they say here, but just basically that he was opinionated. Um, yeah. His dad was an aide at the White House, so yes. it makes me wonder if that was during the Watergate scandal. Should be interesting. That would be around that time, but you can tell, like, uh, like the Cahill are a powerful family, like Aiden, the White House. Uh, you know, the congressman too yeah so like they're pretty pretty powerful too there's definitely uh we'll, we'll talk about it later but definitely a um parallel between Lindbergh's family and the Cahill family uh and so I didn't talk about her back then but Carol Preston is played by Susanna Thompson who I was yesterday's old when I realized she was one of the biggest roles in uh, Once and Again which is a show I watched when I was a kid uh, she played like the ex-wife of the mailman character. There's also like, um, I think it's, I don't want to say, I got to, like Sila Ward was one of the, um, of the main character. Uh, it was, it was pretty good uh, as far as I remember, but it was uh, Evan Rachel Wood who kind of started on that oh. show. And Shane West, okay. too. That's right. That's right. Shane West. Um, oh, well. Yeah, that that's like my childhood, basically. Um, she was also um, in Arrow. She played... Uh, I forgot her name. I think she played Mora. Yes. Queen, didn't she? Yeah. Yes, she did. The mo- I was going to say, like, the Arrow's the mother, mother yeah. but, like, I lost all the names in my head. Um, she has also like recurring characters in NCIS, something called Kings. Uh, and like she she's appeared in like guest stars in several things like X File and YPD Blue, Doctor Queen Medicine Woman. I'm gonna have to go back and see that. Uh, she was also in. I've only SVU seen the one episode, and CSI. I don't think I'll want to watch anything else. <laughs> Such a mistake, in my opinion. Dr. Queen Medicine Woman, like, this is the pentacle of my childhood. Um, so back in France, uh, the weekend lunch hours, or weekdays, too. I think both. It was basically alternating between reruns of Dr. Queen Medicine Woman and Little House on the Prairie. Hmm. That's all we watched. So, so like this, watch a few more episodes of. This is my childhood in a nutshell. Yeah, <laughs> that one was required reading in like fourth grade, and so uh, we definitely watched some of the sh- the episodes of the show too. It was cute. I mean, you know, it's like because it was in, it was in the eighties, right? It was shot in the eighties, maybe late seventies or eighties. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. so like. Probably not the best TV ever, but it's still like it's super cute and it, I don't know, it worked really well. I loved it. Um, but yeah, so that was Susan Thompson. Thought I'd talk about her, catch up on some of the people that we saw before and I hadn't mentioned. Um, after that week, so, um, 
Lucy, that it's at this point that she gets a f- message, I think, from I'm not sure. a phone call. Anyway, she ends up meeting Rufus and Denise in a warehouse, warehouse in Oakland. And uh, that's where Rufus learns who Cahill really is. And he kind of lashes out at Lucy at first. So I thought that a was bit. a little bit like over the top for him like his second reaction once he calmed down was a little more rufus i felt like yeah i think the that first was really just was like the... she's not exactly happy about it it's not like she has a relationship with him yeah so like it was kind whole... of an odd reaction to me for rufus yeah like the whole uh when you meet up you at, the at the family barbecue, picnic yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like but uh, dude she doesn't, like she doesn't even know him yeah and you get to like lucy is bothered she by feels it, yeah. bad and she's bothered by it yeah um and like she like she she's kept it in mostly in this whole time and it's you can see like she's really affecting her and it's you know back to her dilemma with flynn telling her like we'll work together someday where okay like am i gonna go bad but like and on top of that you add like okay so now ridden house like this horrible thing is apparently in my blood it's my legacy so am i gonna turn that way even like so it's it's adding another level of that too yeah it's like rufus lay off a little bit please and he does he does um which thank god because i could not have taken more conflict in this episode because it's already pretty pretty rough for them um, but yeah, so Denise tells them that Flynn jumped to Paris May 21st, 1927, which Lucy identifies right away at the day Lindbergh lands after his first transatlantic flight. Mm-hmm. And Lucy doesn't want to go, uh, not without Wyatt. And she uh, puts it out there like, is it really that bad to just let Flynn do whatever he wants to take Rittenhouse out? And kind of a big turnaround for Lucy because she was the first one going like we need to preserve history and we... yeah it makes sense though because like at this point she's like but yeah supposedly no. Rittenhouse is gonna get me somehow and why it's mm-hmm. not here and like what's the point I feel no, like no, I... All, this is kind of like the lose faith episode and Rufus is like holding them all together by a thread <laughs> yeah I like how they take turns doing that for each other yeah it's they're such the good family uh, and like you said Rufus is the one who holds on the the thread and convinces her to come because Flynn is gonna hurt people and that's the that's really the base of it all and I, th- I, I do think at this point like the history doesn't matter all that much it's more like the fact that Flynn will hurt people that shouldn't be hurt yeah that gets her to go and at first they think they're gonna be just the two of them but no they're not gonna be because Bam Bam is back yep and I really I, like I guess like I shouldn't have been surprised but I was like oh yeah that guy <laughs> I mean he was the natural choice because yeah he already, already sort of been... like knew something was going on yeah he he was the first choice that first time 
when Wyatt was fired. <laughs> um, what was I saying? Uh, yeah, he was the first choice when first choice when Wyatt was fired, and so it makes sense that he'd be the choice for this time too. And it's it's an interesting comeback because we we already love 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 him. Maybe a bit of a strong word, but we we already like him. Already know he's a good guy because Wyatt thinks he's a good guy. So yeah, so like we don't have to question like why he's there, what the loyalties are. Exactly. Unlike something else that happens later in the episode. <laughs> so and he's he's really um like he's really chill about everything. Like he understands that he comes after Wyatt, and it's kind of a weird dynamic and he's just willing to be there and be kind of the support without necessarily mm. calling the shots. Um, and like Lucy tells him, like, don't do any cowboy stuff. I like Rufus's response after that, though. He's like, unless there's cowboys. Yeah. <laughs> cowboy stuff. Yeah. But Rufus he is always from Wyatt already of like, he's falling in line. He's listening. He's doing what Wyatt was supposed to do from the beginning. Yes. Um, which is probably what why what happens to him happens to him. Yep. But um, but also um, he calls Lucy Ma'am again, and Bam Ma'am doesn't get to call her Ma'am. There's only one soldier that gets to call her Ma'am. Uh, and he tells Lucy she's in charge, which is very different from Wyatt because Wyatt is the one in charge. Yeah. Um, Bam Bam, or, um, I forgot what his first name is, Dave Baumgartner. I can't say his name, this is why I'm only going to call him Bam Bam, also because Bam Bam is just a good nickname. Uh, he's played by Victor Zink Jr., um, who's a Canadian actor. Uh, he's been mostly in, like, Hallmark, like, Hallmark-style movies, um... He had a small recurring role in the 100. Uh, that was probably after I stopped watching because I only watched like the first three, four seasons, maybe. Um, he had a one-off on a show called Motive. That was, I'm pretty sure that's a Canadian show too. Uh, which wasn't interesting because basically they started from, they worked like from the ends backward. Like they, you knew from the beginning who was the who was guilty and you'd work backwards to figure out why they did it. Oh, that's interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it was real interesting. Um and I think he had another more like mm, recurring or main role in a show called Evolve Year Zero, but I have no idea what it is about. I just put it because there was like a few credits on this one. But yeah, he he hasn't done a whole lot of things. Uh but like he's really good in the Hallmark movies. I like I like him. I usually like seeing him. Um little note that we no longer see the lifeboat taking off or landing. I think no. they've shown it enough. And they were like, yeah, no, we're just gonna suggest it. Probably expensive. It is, yeah. I'm this pretty sure good. that's why. I'm pretty sure that's why. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so now we're in 1927, and we well, first we go see Flynn 
Emma and Carl, who I always want to call Zach for whatever reason, um, and they're waiting for Lindbergh's plane. And, you know, Flynn is leafing through the journal, and Emma wonders about it, as pretty much everybody who ever sees Flynn with the journal does. Um, and then they hear the plane, and Flynn takes it down with a little small rocket, which, you know, okay. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's your shot. Said, okay. Okay. Um, yeah. The going back to the journal though, is this the first time we've seen Lucy's initials on the front of it? Like, did they switch journals, or has he just been strategically holding it the whole time? I like showing her the back know. of it, or like good question because it always looks like the same back. one. It would be interesting to go back. Like, at what point in the story did they solidify how she got the journal? Because, I mean, at the beginning, it could have just been this vague idea that they knew the journal existed, like, had to come up with a way they got it. But I wonder if there has been an LP since the beginning Uh, and they've just never focused on it. Maybe. I mean, it would make sense because it's always been Lucy's journal. Yeah. The mystery is how it got to Flynn. Yeah. Um, I was was wondering if maybe, like, they switched journals so that we could recognize it more easily. When we see it later. Yeah, it always has a dark cover for sure. And yeah, it always, like when you initials. see Flynn going through it, it always has like those same like papers and whatnot. So I don't know. It'd be interesting to yeah go back and take a look. Um, yeah. Um, so Lindbergh crashes, obviously. He's lucky to not get more than dislocated shoulder. Yeah, I mean... Like early planes crashed a lot, so I don't know like how many plane crashes he was in. No, but... so maybe he had a good idea yeah. on how to maneuver the plane so that. Yeah, like most pilots are taught how to maneuver the plane into a crash. That's true. But, I do uh, not want to talk about plane still. crash. <laughs> I <laughs> listen. Had a friend who's had to put a plane down before in a field. <laughs> no, I'm. I'm... <laughs> I don't want to think about it. <laughs> uh, this is one of my like big, big fears. Um, but anyway, they they walk to Lindbergh and they welcome him to Paris. Hi. Yeah. Not yeah. Cool. <laughs> no, not cool. Um, and Charles Lindbergh is played by actor Jesse Lucan. I think that's how you say his name, probably. I don't know. If I say it wrong, I'm sorry. Um... I put that he's in 23 episodes of something and I don't put I didn't put the name of this something. That's great. Oh. Such great work. I my head's been totally out of whack this week. Um and I will tell you that in a minute. I'm doing my he's job. In great. Episodes of 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 Justified. Justified. Oh my gosh. I was watching a movie like, with one of the guys from that last night. Yeah, which is not even like a small thing. Like it's it's a pretty well known. Yeah. Uh, what I've uh, the reason I uh single that star crossed in the Mathlanter credits is that Mr. Lucan was in 10 of 13 episodes of Star Crossed with Matt Lanter, but funny. Like, they don't interact in this episode, like, in The Lost Generation. 
remember um, when I talked about Bailey Noble, who played Amy, who was on an episode of yep. 90210, and never interacted with Matt on that episode either? So apparently, yeah. whenever Matt Lanter has like the same uh, actors playing with him, he never talks to them ever again. I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was I thought that was a funny coincidence that it happened twice. Uh, he had a recurring role, yeah, in a show called Snow Snowfall, uh, and like a bunch of one-offs, including an obligatory Law and Order, Los Angeles. When is it that we're not talking about an episode of Law? Like someone was in an episode of Law and Order. I so just, everybody was. Everybody, yeah, exactly. The entire the entirety of Sagaftra eventually ends up in an episode of Law and Order, it, just for the sheer number of it. Um, uh, he had oh, he had like a very, very minor recurring role in four episodes of Glee, where yeah, he, I think played, he played a school bully. Yeah, basically, it was it was kind of fun to to see him in that. Uh, but yeah, he he's been on a bunch of shows like Mentalist Castle, Criminal Minds, Nine One One, Lone Star, The Rookie. I I need to go back and find the episode of The Rookies on just to just for fun. Uh, and he also was in a movies that I, I I didn't watch it but I recognize it. it's called Forty Two. Yeah, watch um, Did you watch it? Uh, when it first came out, I did. Yeah. There he plays a guy named Eddie Stanky. Do you know if it's like a one of yeah, the main roles I mean, or not? I don't know. No, I don't think it was. No, I think he was just one of the like smaller parts. Yeah. But anyway, on that note, we cut to the credits. And now we're going to talk about the history of this episode. Yeah, so this is this is making up for the fact that last time didn't have much. <laughs> um, so I was going to, I might have missed one at some point because they did mention quite a few people. But I was going to cover like the Dingo Bar, Pablo Picasso, because I mentioned him, the Fitzgeralds, and then of course Hemingway, uh, Josephine Baker, and Lindbergh. So jumping right to it uh, the dingo bar yeah and y'all are going to hear me butcher a few words in french which is probably going to make helen cringe <laughs> oh i'm gonna i'm just gonna laugh um, and, and and just say them after yeah so the dingo bar is located in montparnasse montparnasse that's not how you there you go okay <laughs> and it's on rue de l'ombre rue de l'ombre it... oh yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> it opened in 1923, and it was a popular stop for Hemingway. Um, it's also where he first met F. Scott Fitzgerald, who quickly became a friend, and then kind of they had an antagonistic relationship. Eventually, um, there's at one point where like he sent Fitzgerald a copy of a book to like annotate and you know critique, and he sent him back like ten pages of notes, and his reply was a uh, rather succinct and rude <laughs> but uh it was also known for being open all night which made it a great spot for authors and artists in paris in the 20s so that kind of you know out all night atmosphere and then picasso so probably one of the more famous names in art in the 20th century was born in malaga spain in 1881 and he is known as one of the most influential art artists of the 20th century. He began his art tutelage at the age of 10 
with his father, a professor of drawing, as his instructor. He had his first art exhibition at the age of 13. And then the family moved to Barcelona, and eventually Picasso entered formal schooling in art, but found it unsatisfying and found inspiration instead in the life around him and at the Prado Museum, where he observed works from the great Spanish painters such as El Greco and Goya. After an illness, he decided to change course and rejected the formal art schooling his family wished for him to follow and make his own path. Around this time, he also started doing, um, oh, sorry, going by his primarily, I cannot speak today. Around this time, he also started going primarily by his mother's last name, Picasso, instead of his father's, which was Ruiz. So prior to that, he was Pablo Ruiz. Um, He had his first exhibition in Paris in 1900 and traveled there with a friend to see it in person. Um, From then on, he was back and forth between Paris until the 30s when he settled in France. From there, Picasso traveled and chose many different people as subjects for his art, including imprisoned women. And his painting styles changed many times. He had like the red or the blue period, the rose period. um, And he continues to change his art throughout his lifetime. It's never stagnant or all the same. Between 1909 and 1912, Picasso, along with another painter, Brock, which I might be saying wrong, developed a style known as analytical cubism, um, which they kind of coined that style of painting. At the start of World War I, Picasso remained in France and made friends with a composer who kind of roped him in designing costumes and sets for theater productions, which is how he met his wife, Olga Koklova who was a dancer. Another artist, oh, sorry, other artists in the Surrealist movement took him in as their own, even though he didn't quite fit the mold of Surrealism, but it did affect his art, just like almost everything else in his life did. Around 1935, he actually transitioned mainly into writing poetry for a little while. He also sculpted during this time, uh, though only privately in his studio in his home that he had with his mistress, uh, Marie-Therese Walter. And he was known to work with ceramics as well, um, but the sculptures really didn't come out until after his death. In the 1930s, he had become more heavily involved in politics and declared his support for communism, which led to protests in his galleries. However, his enormous growing fame eventually put him beyond the reach of critics. He continued creating art until his death in 1973. And then Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald... They were mentioned briefly by Hemingway in the episode. Um, yeah, we see them quickly. At the born table in St. Paul, Minnesota. And, yeah, they're there at the go. table with Picasso. Which um, we know for sure Hemingway was at least friends with the Fitzgeralds. I don't know that he really met with Picasso or Baker, but they were all in Paris around the same time period. And you so know it's that- possible. Like you said, like the Dingo Bar was a like all night kind of bar. So, mm-hmm. and like Hemingway said that like it's the only place to be. So you know, they probably ran into each other at some point. Who knows? Yeah, they or they at least knew of each other if they didn't yeah. know each other personally. So, born in Saint Paul, Minnesota, in 1896, F. Scott Fitzgerald. His name was actually Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald. Francis Scott Key wrote the Star Spangled Banner. Um but he goes by F. Scott Fitzgerald. And his most well-known novel is The Great Gatsby, which is what we all know him for today. Um, He was known to be an overachiever as a young boy, which didn't make him very popular. 
Um, but he did thrive socially at Princeton. However, at one point he flunked out. And when he returned, he no longer held that status in the social clubs he'd been part of. He joined the Army in 1917 and then met the daughter of an Alabama Supreme Court judge, Zelda, when he was stationed near Montgomery. Uh, She was known to be something of a wild child already. And the two fell in love. Um, She was a flapper in the 20s. And they went to New York where he hoped to become a published author, uh, but did not have success. And Zelda broke off their engagement. Uh, Fitzgerald returned to St. Paul, revised his first novel, and had it picked up by Scrivener's for publishing, and then reunited with Zelda. They married in 1920. His first novel, This Side of Paradise, was followed by his second two years later, The Beautiful and the Damned. In 1924, the couple and their daughter Scotty moved to France and joined an expatriate community there, which inspired his last novel, Tender is the Night, which was published much later. And uh, both he and Hemingway were uh, wrote novels inspired by that community. Both of them kind of wrote things that affected them. And then 1925, he published his most well-known novel, The Great Gatsby. In the following years, Phil- Fitzgerald uh, developed a heavy drinking habit, and Zelda became determined to become a ba- ballerina very late in life. Uh, she practiced heavily, and this preceded two mental breakdowns, one in 1930 and one in 1932. Um, she spent time in sanitariums for that and she was also in sanitariums off and on throughout the rest of her life mm-hmm. however 1932 she did publish a semi-autobiographical novel Save Me the Waltz which gave light to the inner workings of the Fitzgerald's troubled marriage and caused a rift with her husband um, 1937 Fitzgerald moved to Hollywood to start as a screenwriter and begin an affair with columnist, columnist Sheila Graham he also started a novel titled The Last Tycoon, um, but he passed away from a heart attack at the age of 44 with it half finished in 1940. Eight years later, 1948, Zelda passed away in a fire at a hospital she was in in Asheville, North Carolina. So Damn. Kind of a sad end for both of them. Yeah. Um, Ernest Hemingway. So to our three big characters of this episode. Yes. Um, as mentioned in the show, Hemingway got uh, the term the lost generation from Gertrude Stein, who unfavorably labeled them such, but Hemingway used it in an epigraph for his novel, The Sun Also Rises, kind of pushing back on that, oh yeah, we're the lost generation. Um, and it came to define the authors and artists following the period of World War One. So the people that were kind of coming of age during World War One and that 1920s era, mm-hmm. Um, they all kind of had that same vibe going on. Um, he was born in Oak Park, Illinois, just outside Chicago in 1899. Hemingway started work as a journalist in Kansas City until 1917 when he became an ambulance driver during the war. He did not join the Army because he had an eye defect. He did try. Um, he was wounded while he was an ambulance driver in Italy and returned to the U.S. where he continued his career as a journalist, um, both American and Canadian. Yes. Eventually, he landed in the ex- expatriate community in Paris and published his first novel in 1926, and then a second in 1929 titled A Farewell to Arms. I mentioned the first one earlier, The, um, mm-hmm. the Sun Also Rises. Yes. And but yeah, then, yeah he, in this episode, he says he's a journalist for the Toronto Star, right? Yeah. Yeah. He he was there. There's um little fun fact. 
Um, there's a show, like a Canadian show with Yannick Bisson called uh, Murdoch Mystery. And yeah. they used uh, Hemingway's character for, for a bit, too. Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah. Because it, it's yeah, it's like set, it's that, set around. I that. watch it as a background noise. It's, it's <laughs> so I don't uh, always pay attention. I I want to re- like I've watched like the first ten season. I need to pick it back up. It's a really really good show, but it's it's long now. I I don't know how many yeah, epi- like how many seasons. I think they're like lot. fourteen, fifteen, sixteen seasons at this point. Like yeah, I know I uh, put it on as background noise because it's like one of those shows you don't have to like. 100% pay attention to because the mystery so you like kind of know what's happening there's a Seven, formula for those shows 17 season oh wow yeah yeah but it is a good background show for me it, it's a good um, show it's a fun show I, I really like it yeah um he was heavily influenced by his own experiences for the novels he wrote including his 1940 work for whom the bell tolls um, his works were known for being intensely masculine and adventurous which kind of describes him in a way Hmm. Um, while based in Paris he still traveled extensively which also reflected in his many short stories Um, have you read any of his stuff at all the only one I can remember reading is Hills Like White Elephants and I can't remember if I liked it because I read it in college and it was like I had to read it so whether or not I liked it didn't really matter Yeah, I haven't (laughs) honestly (laughs) I haven't read a lot of American like "Quote unquote classics." Writers, yeah, um, there's definitely like the Great Gatsby. I, I need to read, uh, and like try to get some of those those big names yeah. and and kind of see. Um, so because of his love of fishing, he purchased his home in Key West, Florida, and I added I added this fact just for you. <laughs> he was gifted a six-toed cat named Snow White, uh-huh. and there are still many six-toed cats in Key West today because of the, they are descendants of that original cat. And whenever you have like polydactyl cats, they're not a rare thing. Like, but they're yeah. called Hemingway cats. Yeah, for that they're reason, call them Hemingway cats because of that. So I did know that fact. Yep. Um. So he was in Spain during the Civil War in the 1930s. Then purchased a house in Cuba. Uh, then went to cover the Japanese invasion of China. During World War II, he was in London as a journalist and was with American troops on D-Day. Saw the Battle of the Bulge and lent his expertise on the art of war during the liberation of Paris and pressing soldiers he was with. Following the war, he returned to Cuba, but continued to travel as well. He was involved in two consecutive plane crashes in Africa in 1952. Um, he was injured from those in those plane crashes. In 1953, he received the Pulitzer Prize for his novel, The Old Man in the Sea. And then received the Nobel Prize for Literature the following year. In 1960, he moved to Ketchum, Idaho. And he was hospitalized twice at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, where he received electroshock treatments. And then following his return home after his second hospitalization in 1961, uh, and this is just a trigger warning for suicide if you want to skip the next like five seconds, uh, he died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound, which at the time his fourth wife, Mary, claimed must have been accidental, and he did not leave a note. And he was a big game hunter. She said he was cleaning the mm-hmm. shotgun early in the morning. So it, it I don't know what the official yeah. ruling was there. But, you know, like, obviously I don't, I don't know much about Hemingway, but the way they portray him, 
like you can tell he's seen he's seen some shit and like you said he went through like two world wars and i feel like that generation went through both they saw a lot of things that people should not ever see or encounter um so it you know it's not it's not a uh that big of a stretch to yeah i think to to go to like how much exactly and and like mental health was not a thing um yeah now i started reading a book called soldiers don't go mad by charles glass last week i haven't got very far in it but it kind of is uh it covers that first part of world war one where they start seeing what they called shell shock at the time yeah. yeah and so um and they had no clue what it was or how to deal with it yeah um they'd never really experienced it on the scale they were before uh but yeah so that was Hemingway and then Josephine Baker she was born Frida Josephine McDonald in 1906 in St. Louis um she left school at an early age to support her family who were also performers she also as a child saw the East St. Louis riots um which she compared to riots she saw later in her life as well um and she started performing vaudeville at around 15 when she ran away uh and she married around this time to taking on her husband's last name of baker which she would keep for the rest of her life um so that's when she became known as josephine baker instead of frida mcdonald and um this is actually her second marriage she'd been first married at the age of 13 uh, uh, baker's dancing it's the kind of thing i wish time. i didn't know yeah <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Baker's dancing talents took her to New York, where she was part of the revival of black art known as the Harlem Renaissance, and eventually France, uh, first dancing the theater de Champs-Élysées. There you go. (laughs) Can you tell I didn't take a lick of French in high school? Um, From there, she grew into one of the most popular music hall performers and eventually received star billing at the Foie... Anyway, that took me a uh, second. I gotta say, I'm pretty sure show the dance savage. Yeah, no, that's where her show, the dance savage, had her performing in a skirt made of bananas. Um, but it took the city by storm. In the 1930s, she also debuted as a singer and filmed several movies. She became a French citizen in 1937. And then when the war broke out, Baker eventually had to flee Paris, but she was able to continue to help the country where she had found her success. She opened her countryside home to troops and passed along documents and information she gathered while performing. Um, it is to be noted, too, that she was everything the Nazis opposed. So she was she was a successful black woman. She was married to a Jewish man at the time, so in an interracial relationship, and she was openly bisexual as well. So, like ticked all the wrong boxes basically for them and but she had a lot of celebrity status so she was able to get close to access leadership while performing and that's how she would gather this information um eventually she did have to flee france uh they were getting just a little bit too aware of what she was doing uh so she left with several documents and intelligence written on her music sheet in invisible ink and then following the war, she returned to Paris and sold pieces of jewelry to help people who had become destitute under the occupation. She was awarded the, I know it translates to the cross of war, but I'm not sure what exactly you call it. Um, and then 
a Legion of Honor with the Resistance Rosette. So two awards coming out of World War One or uh, World War Two. She returned to the United States and once again experienced the segregation she had as a child, um, but she refused to perform for segregated crowds, which sometimes forced the venues to desegregate because she was such a popular performer. Um, and she also was one of the few women who spoke on the March in Washington, um, saying in her speech, you know, friends, that I do not lie to you when I tell you I have walked into the palaces of kings and queens and into the houses of presidents and much more. But I could not walk into a hotel in America and get a cup of coffee. And that made me mad. Um, during her later years, she adopted 12 children from many different countries and called them the Rainbow Tribe. Uh, they went on the road with That's her adorable. and she used them kind of as an example. Yeah, as an example of how everyone could kind of reside in harmony with each other. And then following a successful show and a standing ovation in 1975, she fell into a coma in her sleep and passed away. So what a way to go. Kind of. I mean, more like, you know, everything was good that day and just kind of ended. And I then, mean, that's that, that's how you that's honestly probably the best way to end it. Yeah. And then lastly, Charles Lindbergh. So this one's long because a lot happened to this dude. It was like he lived like three different lifetimes. But um, so he was born in 1902 in Michigan. And he, su- ex- he achieved success. Success. Most famously, I cannot talk today. <laughs> born Sorry. in 1902 in Michigan. <laughs> Charles Lindbergh achieved success most famously as an aviator, uh, which is what we saw him as in this episode. Uh, when he was a young boy, his father was elected to Congress, and he spent the decade between Little Falls, uh, Michigan, and Washington, D.C. At the age of nine, a barnstormer flew a plane to Little Falls, where he lived, and even though Lindbergh did not ride in it, it inspired him to become a pilot. So that was the first time he saw on an airplane, um, which is just wild, because like, we grew up knowing exactly what airplanes like. Exactly, yeah. son has known what an airplane was since he was about eight months old. Um, like, but you look up at any any given yeah. time, and you see a couple of them. Uh... Yeah, no. Um, yeah, we were. I was rewatching this at like the beginning of this episode, and it was when the plane crashes, and he goes, "Airplane." I was like, uh, "Maybe we don't need to see the crashing airplane." <laughs> um, <laughs> but even traumatize uh, your son by watching Timeless. I mean, he crashes his own airplane. So, <laughs> but uh, in. 19 or sorry in world war one uh, as it approached his father was pretty unpopular because he had a stance uh, against the u.s getting involved in the war um the war itself advanced aviation and created the rise of famed pilots such as french Charles numgesser the red baron and the u.s's edward reichenbacher in 1916 Lindbergh drived <laughs> Lindbergh drove his mother, his uncle, and the family dog to see a dying relative. The trip took 40 days, and they arrived after the person passed away. So that just, I left that in there to, like, demonstrate later how short his flight to Paris was compared to this 40-day-long drive halfway across the United States. Yeah, the cars Um, were not as fast as... And, the and like the infrastructure, yeah, too. Was... Yeah, the infrastructure was well, because I mean, he was going to California, so the infrastructure was just not there at the time the way we have it today. Yeah. Um, I don't know what route they would have had to take, but it was not like we have it today at all. Yeah. Um, 
A poor student, Lindbergh jumped at the chance to earn credit for farming as men left for the war and those too young to enlist took their places on the farms. And he did that in 1918. So um, he was slightly too young, but he also was a really bad student. So he's like, yes, I can get out of school this way. <laughs> and that's how he finished his high schooling. Um, he planned to enlist on his 18th birthday, but the war ended before he could. Instead, he attended the University of Wisconsin before dropping out due to poor grades. In 1922, he joined the Nebraska Aircraft Corporation Flight School, where he would learn to fly as well as build aircraft and maintain them. Um, there, he took his first ride in an airplane, but the company shut down before he could fly solo. 1923, the following year, Lindbergh bought his first airplane, a Curtis JN-4D, which is nicknamed a Jenny. Um, he flies his first solo trip the very same day he gets the plane. Um, prior to that, he had never flown solo. <laughs> so I guess at least if he was going to do it, he did it with his own plane. Um, yeah. And there's a there's a museum of flight near Seattle that has one of these as a reproduction. It's not a large plane. It's pretty small, which I say that having flown in like Cessna 172s, which are also pretty small. But this one's a small airplane and it's mostly like wooden metal. Yeah, I've, ne so, I've never seen, like, up close a, like, one of those old, like, first planes. Yeah. Um, well, this one's, it's pretty small. Uh, I think it only weighs, like, a thousand pounds empty. Something like that. But I could be wrong. That might be the spirit of St. Louis I'm thinking of. But uh, that year, his father loses an election campaign, and then the following year dies from a brain tumor. So 1924. Uh, so by the time Lucy's talking to him, he'd actually, his father had actually passed away. But I think it makes more sense in this story for Timeless to keep his father alive until that point. Um, 1924 to 1925, Lindbergh tra trained with the Army uh, in Texas in flight school. And he eventually graduated near the top of his class, which had started with slightly over 100 people and ended with 18. Uh, he commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Air Service Reserve Corps. And then went to St. Louis, where the company he was flying for was eventually put in charge of the St. Louis to Chicago mail line, and he became their chief pilot. And he had to fly often, even in difficult weather, which prepared him for his transatlantic mm -hmm. flight. Uh, the Ordig Prize, which was an award that um, would go to anyone who could fly from New York to Paris and was worth $25,000 at the time, was announced, and it sparked birds in. $25,000, like, of, like, 20s dollars? Yeah. Jeez, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, so it was announced uh, in the early 1920s, mid-1920s, and sparked his interest. So he begins to gather funds from local St. Louis businessmen, and their contribution is what inspires the name of his plane, A Spirit of St. Louis. Um, he commissions the plane from Ryan Aeronautical Company in San Diego, and it's completed in 1927. And he puts the aircraft through a series of tests, deems it worthy of flying across the Atlantic, and goes to New York with it. Um, so that's why when you see it falling and it zooms in on the Spirit of St. Louis, um, it's pretty well known that that's his plane. I just, I just when saw like $25,000 in like, 1925 like around that time would be like over 400,000 today that's a lot that's a whole lot of money yeah so um 
He goes to New York. There's a few rain delays, but early on May 20th, 1927, Lindbergh took off from Roosevelt Field on Long Island. Only days prior, Numgesser, the man I mentioned earlier, he was a famed World War One pilot, had disappeared over Ireland, Ireland, attempting the same flight that Lindbergh was taking off for. Um, he had never been uh, located, so we still have no clue where Numgesser is today. Uh, Lindbergh started his journey on little sleep. He hadn't slept much that night and took a route that led him north along the Greenland coast and over Ireland. So instead of going across the Atlantic, he actually went up and over the globe, basically, kind of following an arch, which was the shorter route well, than it would have been going straight. It's still what planes do today. Yeah, that's exactly how yeah. planes fly today. Um, but to keep himself awake, he kept the window open, which I can only imagine how cold it was. Uh, he also needed to use a periscope during certain times because of the design of the aircraft. And then he also had to use dead reckoning, which was not what he typically had to do with overland travel. Um, he had to use like a compass and figure it out. Um, but when he saw land again after he had departed Greenland's coast, he was actually only three miles off course. So once he got to Ireland, he was only about three miles off. Which is pretty good, I think. Um, yeah. He landed around 33 and a half hours after takeoff, and he was met with over 100,000 people running toward him on the runway. This flight and his fame uh, sparked the Lindbergh boom in aviation. Uh, so he was basically like, I don't know if you realize it, but after Top Gun came out in the 80s, there was this huge, like, everybody wanted to be a pilot because, like, everybody wanted to be Tom Cruise. I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, and so it's basically Navy propaganda, but uh, this was, like, a huge boom in aviation following the Lindbergh landing. And so um, he becomes very famous for it. He does a tour of all 48 states with his plane, which I'm assuming he probably couldn't do after Timeless. Um, considering yeah. they crashed it. Uh, but the plane today is actually in the Smithsonian's uh, National Air and Space Museum. Oh, so uh, we're not in that timeline. Yeah, I think... Well, I mean, they could have restored it. But um, I think it's in the one that is outside the city near, I think, Dulles. Not the one that's inside the city near the Smithsonian Castle. But I could be wrong on that one. It's been a while since I've been there. Um, I have seen it in person. Yep. And then he also, right around this time, became Time's first man of the year Ooh. and married the daughter of the U.S. ambassador to Mexico, Anne Morrow. She flew with him as his navigator, radio operator, and co-pilot. And so they were kind of known as, like, the couple of the skies. Ooh, and that's... the couple had a son um, who was named after his father, but he tragically was kidnapped from their home late at night um, when he was just under two years old. The kidnapper used a ladder that appeared to have broken as they climbed it and left little other evidence besides a ransom demand on the window. After a series of ransom demands and the return of the baby's night clothes to prove authenticity, a ransom was given to a man who named himself John, uh, who told them to look on a boat in Martha's Vineyard. Uh, the child was not located there. But sadly, a few months after the kidnapping, a badly decomposed remains were found about four miles from the Lindbergh's home, and it was identified as their son. Oh, that's right. um, and then the autopsy showed a major head injury, and then he likely died a short time after being taken. Um, I read a book in 
in middle school, high school, junior high time period. Uh, I think it was called the trial and it covers the trial of the guy they catch. Um, and I know at the time I remember them speculating that he had been injured during the fall off that ladder. I didn't see that in any articles that I was reading through, but I do remember that coming up. Um, there's some other like conspiracy theory stuff that's around it, but I'm not sure it's true. So I didn't mention it here, but eventually, um, during the investigation, the FBI was brought in and a suspect was located using the ransom money. Um, they had used a certain type of gold note. And so they knew it was this guy who had it. And his name was Bruno Richard Hauptmann, um, a German carpenter living in the Bronx. Um, he was identified matching the description of the man from the ransom demands and the money drop and found to be in possession of the ransom money. Boards in his attic also matched the ladder, and his car had a similar uh, look to the one spotted in the area the night of the kidnapping. Um, so what he, what it mostly was was circumstantial evidence. It wasn't 100% they had mm-hmm. this guy down, but he was put on trial, found guilty, and eventually sentenced to death by electrocution. Um, attention continued to play the plague the Lindberghs, and Lindbergh by this point didn't really like all of the fame and attention he was receiving. Um, and they moved to Europe. Eventually, Lindbergh was asked to go to Germany to observe the Luftwaffe, the um, German Air Force. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, he was given a service cross of the German Eagle by Hermann Göring on behalf of Hitler. Um, there, Lindbergh observed Germany's Air Force. Um, and saying it was superior to that of France or England, and they should be careful not to provoke Germany. Um, he later blames, or sorry, he later partially blames England for the outbreak of war, along with the Jews and the Roosevelt administration. So, um, yeah, he really placed most of the blame on anybody but the Nazi party and Hitler. Um, and then when World War II broke out, Lindbergh was wholeheartedly against American involvement and joined an isolationist movement known as America First, a group started by students at Yale that quickly radicalized, driving away some of its original members. During rallies for America First, Lindbergh made speeches that placed blame on Jewish people for pushing the war agenda in the U.S., as well as Britain and Roosevelt. Um, he spoke heavily of race and the need to protect white culture. And he resigned his commission in the Air Reserves as a result of Roosevelt's disagreement with his views on war. Um, I didn't know where to really throw it in other than the sentence, but he was also involved in eugenics as well, um, which fits. Uh, when Pearl Harbor was There's attacked, a theme bringing, there, yeah, yeah, not a great one. Uh, no, when Pearl Harbor was attacked, bringing the war to the U.S., he said it had only been a matter of time, and he was not surprised. Unable to re-enter service, he tried. He consulted with Ford on the production of the B-24, which is a bomber, and went to the Pacific Theater to consult on um, the F-4U Corsair. He eventually flew 50 combat missions with the Navy and then also with the Air Corps in the P-38, the Army Air Corps. The Air Force wasn't around yet. Um, he also drew comparisons using sweeping generalities between the U.S. and Japan and what the Nazis were doing to Jews in Europe. The comments were not well taken. Uh, he never outright condemned Germany for what they did, but did question why they committed some acts as it went against the way he observed them to behave, um, such as Crystal Knock. He was like, why are these orderly people smashing in windows and things like that? And it's like, 
I feel like you're being willfully ignorant here. Yeah. Um, after the war, he worked with a doctor to develop a machine to keep organs alive outside the body, which was a precursor to the iron lung, and continued to consult on aviation. He published a book called The Spirit of St. Louis and won a Pulitzer Prize for it in 1954. He also received a Guggenheim Medal, and Eisenhower appointed him as Brigadier General in the Air Force. Um, presidents following Roosevelt kind of brought him back into popularity as an American hero. In 1957, he started an affair with a woman he met at a dinner party and then also had a few other affairs as well. In his later years, he championed wildlife conservation, particularly birds, and he passed away from lymphatic cancer in 1974 in Hawaii. So, like I said, it was like the man lived like different lives, very strangely. Um, It's just like the before Rittenhouse and after Rittenhouse. Yeah, which I think is why they picked him for this episode, particularly fits really well. Yeah. Um, But yeah. It does, yeah. But also That's... he wasn't given a... At the same time, he was not given a public platform prior to becoming famous, so... Yeah, but no, I, the flip, and I mean, was it a flip? I don't know, but the, the fact that he went from, like, big popular to his views of Germany and whatnot, uh, it's... there. There's a good enough separation there that you can... You can see the influence, um, and I mean we'll 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 get there. But I think it's really interesting how they in the show they portray him of like it's not his view; it's what he's been told to say. They want to say, yeah, the yeah. scapegoat. Um, but yeah. So back to the episode. Uh, I'm gonna give Heather a break here. <laughs> that was a lot. I'm sorry. I was I even try I even cut stuff out because I was like, okay, this isn't like super important. This isn't super important. I can cut yeah. that out. I mean, I you know condense this. Yeah. If people don't like it, they're they're welcome to skip it. But to me personally, I can tell that knowing like the historical background uh on those episodes has just given me like even more of of like a big appreciation for for what's been done in, because yeah. yeah the way they tie it all in is just to me it makes it even more better even even better even more better that's yeah. not that's not English that's okay I couldn't <laughs> speak during that whole thing so and I was reading directly <laughs> from notes uh, okay back into the episode uh, the team has finally arrived in 1927 and apparently Bam Bam is completely immune to the uh, motion sickness uh, usually due to the movement of the lifeboat Rufus is pretty mad about it <laughs> it's like he's like really nothing well you know having like the new person on the lifeboat being sick it's kind of like the their version of hazing and he doesn't even yeah. get that like what's the point of getting a new guy like i don't have my buddy and i'm getting a new guy and he doesn't even get sick like i can't even tease him about that yeah <laughs> it's funny yeah well that's i think that's like the irony of his character is that he's just so perfect yeah like the whole time yeah um so they walk to the place where Lindbergh is supposed to land 
Uh, and Lucy uh, gives the historical minute of the episode, the history minute of the episode. Uh, and like we said, it's it's not it's not great. Like the highlights are not fantastic. Um, and she, so they run into a French man on a bicycle, which that felt very cliche. You just need the baguette and the beret. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and they tell they. Uh, he tells him that the plane has crashed. Uh, so obviously they're a little bit concerned. Yeah. Uh, and at the crash site, Bam Bam sees right away that it was not an accident. Um, and like you said, like we see Bam Bam being like pretty perfect, but like, you know, he's yeah. competent, he's respectful. Uh, so it's, it's easy to like him. And well, my question here was why wasn't he chosen originally? Because he's also unproblematic, as far as we know. He doesn't have the burden of his wife died. Like, oh, yeah, I mean, the, the, obviously, the, the, we wouldn't have the story without yeah. him. The, this but they is made one... him so perfect that it's like yeah. <laughs> if they didn't have him, this is one where I'm gonna plead the fifth. Um, okay. yeah, Which... do we find out later? But yeah, anyway, so definitely interesting that they chose Wyatt, not Bam Bam. So anyway, uh... <laughs> Helen won't make a face at me right now. Uh, I'm just going to focus on my headline right now. Um, they... I'm too close to guessing something. <laughs> I don't know if you're close to guessing it. I'm not sure I would say that. We'll see. I we'll think see. I am. I think they we'll chose see. Wyatt because he had something to do with Lucy in the future that she had to accomplish. Oh, no. <laughs> um, There's something there. Or my theory of Jessica being Rittenhouse is still out there. So uh, We'll see. I guess. We still have a lot of show to cover. Uh, anyway, so they theorized that Flynn kidnapped him because, like, his body was in the wreckage, so yeah, somewhere in there, and there were tire marks. Yeah, and with a lot of expertise, Bim Bam figures out that the exact place that Flynn launched the rocket from, like he even really identifies like the exact type of rocket. I think. Yeah, he's like it was this yeah. thing on a mounted like hmm. tripod from yeah. four hundred yards. Um. Uh. At this point, they're accosted by Hemingway. Uh, who's trying to get a story? Uh, mm -hmm. and Lucy goes full fangirl mode again, which is, yeah, I love it. And of course, she makes a blunder because it's Lucy. It's like, I've read all of your no, I mean, all the words in your one novel that you've published so far, <laughs> yeah. but you know, maybe there will be more. Um, and like, cause like Hemingway obviously likes the attention. Uh, yeah, it's really cute. Uh, speaking of Hemingway, he's played by actor Brendan Barash. Barash, Barash. I don't know. Um, he's done mostly one-offs. Uh, on one of the episode of The West Wing, actually, I need to go and take a look at this one. Uh, Bones, NCIS, Lucifer. He had three episodes on Gilmore Girls. I didn't went and looked which one, but I don't know. From the type of character he tends to play, his face, and like the name of the character, 
I wouldn't be surprised if it was like some of like Logan's friend group. I don't know. Like I wouldn't be surprised if it was in those episodes somewhere. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I've watched part of Gilmore Girls, but I couldn't tell you. I've only watched it through once. They're but also I rem- a lot younger in those. Yes, like that show. So even like people who are pretty popular, they yeah. look but a you, lot different. You know, um, so when she gets to Yale, I think, uh, and she meets Logan, and he has like a whole group of yeah. of friends, and they they do like at some point they jump with like an umbrella or something. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he was like part of this group. Okay, that's a total guess on my part, but yeah. Um, so he had some, uh, there were some credits of like short movies on YouTube, on IMDb. And let's just say I, I was, I, I, I paused because the shorts are a series called like a girl in a bra, a guy in boxers. I'm like, Hmm. It turns out they're actually like a, a comedy shorts of like a couple, uh, and like they're on YouTube, and I watched one, but it was hilarious. It was like highly encouraged to watch them because they're really funny. They actually remind me of a French. Um, it's like a ten-minute sitcom that mm-hmm. uh, that was like in the I want to say late nineties, early two thousand, called Un gars une fille, like uh, a man a woman, and same like they're a couple kind of having like some fun banter or some fun bickering uh i feel like it was kind of modeled on that i might be wrong uh, i don't know if you know the french actor jean de jardin no he's in uh all the nespresso commercials now like he was in the artist no and he's in all the nespresso commercials with george clooney <laughs> okay um, that's the french actor in the nespresso commercial with george clooney and he actually okay. debuted in that sitcom Okay. So just, yeah, I had that. Yeah. Uh, oh, but last but not least on Brendan Barash's credits, he's been in like a few episodes of Days of Our Lives. And by a few, I mean over 400. Oh, wow. <laughs> that, yeah. That's my, that's, that was the text I sent in the, in the group chat. Cause I, yeah, I, I went like, oh, okay, he's not in a whole lot of... Wait, what? Holy... <laughs> yeah, he four, was on... 413, I think, or 423, something like that. That's Yeah, and then 800 episodes of General Hospital. How did I miss this one? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I was definitely... My eyes were not working properly. My brain wasn't working properly. Uh, But yeah, that's Brendan Barash. Like, lots of daytime TV. Yeah. Uh, back to the episode. Thanks to uh, Hemingway, they identify like a cigarette found at the site, and he offers to tell them to the seller uh, as long as he gets the story for the Toronto Star. Uh, and we cut to a club in Paris, the infamous uh, Dingo Bar, and where Josephine Baker is performing to the delight of one Rufus Carlin. Uh, listen, I did not expect to see to to have so many reference to porn in an episode of Timeless, which I don't really feel like 
that's what she was doing. So I thought that was kind of an odd take on it. But I mean, I think it's just because she like was this... wearing very little clothing. Yeah. And I think, you know, but... it's a teenage, we're talking about a teenage boy and it's sexual yeah. awakening. Uh, it doesn't take much, I think. Um, <laughs> not that I know much about teenage boys, but, you know, it's like a sultry music and, you know, a pretty woman with very little clothing on the cover. Yeah. <laughs> Um. Yeah, we learned way more about Rufus's teenage years that we really needed to. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do love that Bam Bam is right behind him, and he's like he's really in on it. Like he's having fun with it too. Yeah. Uh, but he also asked like, "Who's Josephine Baker?" And Lucy is shocked. Like, you don't know who she is. And at this point, Lucy was actually like dancing in place, like she was having fun, yeah. enjoying the show. It was so cute. Um, I love how Lucy can just go to full fangirl mode, even like in the darkest moments. Yeah, like, it doesn't matter what's happening. Like she forgets about Kay Cahill. She forgets about why I'm not being there. It's just she sees Josephine Baker and she's having a little dance. Um, yeah. Um, and so she enlightens Bam Bam about who and us too uh, about who Josephine Baker is and then Hemingway uh, says she'll introduce them and Lucy reacts the way I would if I was told I was about to meet Taylor Swift um, <laughs> basically um, and Josephine Baker we've got a lot of guests This there was a lot of guests uh, Josephine Blaker is played by Tiffany Daniels. Um, it's actually pretty interesting. So she has training in dancing and singing on top of acting. So I'm yeah. I'm actually thinking she's probably the one singing in the episode. Maybe. I wouldn't be surprised. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, she has a lot of credits in dancers, like in La La Land, for example, and she also danced for the NFL and the NBA. Huh. So it was that was interesting. Um, as far as acting role, she was a main on a miniseries called Aberrant, but there was only three episodes. Uh, she has one of the bigger role in a Nicolod Nickelodeon show called That Girl Lele. Um, never heard of it. And then the rest of the rest of them are mostly one-offs. It was like Colony, NCIS, Grace and Frankie, The Good Doctor, Station Nineteen. But no, I thought her back like her background as like dancer singer was really interesting for yeah, interesting. that role. Yeah, um, and I, I really I really liked her actually. Um, but after the dingo bar, well, Lucy goes to get introduced to her version of Taylor Swift. Uh, we cut back to Mason Industries. Uh, where Denny's come into the lunchroom to find a bunch of strangers like strange agents she's never seen before and Gia tells her that apparently they're in charge now and so she goes up to the briefing room where Mason is talking to a new guy uh agent Jake Neville NSA and he tells her that the NSA has taken over and Denise has been dismissed from her command how dare you didn't Flynn work for the NSA right that was interesting Ooh. given who they are 
Yes. But also, it's Jim Beaver. Yay. Yes, the, the, I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> um, but I was, my note here was, give Denise her badge back. <laughs> yes. Like, how dare you, the audacity. Uh, like, as much as I loved Bobby in Supernatural, like, Jake Neville can just fuck right off. Um, yeah. Uh, as we said, he's placed by Jim Beaver, who has a whooping 159 credits to his name. Uh, like it's it's a case of you name it, he's been in it. Uh, obviously, he's mainly recognized from his role as Bobby in Supernatural, and I mean, Crick Um, he's appeared as the same role in the remake last year, The Winchester. Uh, he's been in The Boys too, because Kripke. Uh, I mean, and also he's insanely talented. Um, Something called Thunder Alley. I don't know where I put that. Probably because he was one of the main. It's like a 90s show. I don't know. But he's created go back like all the way to the 70s. Um, where he more or less started in Dallas for like a couple episodes. Uh oh, he was he did like some daytime, young and the raceless, days of our life. He was also in Justified for a bit. Apparently he was in Sister Act, and I haven't watched this movie in Forever, probably since I was a kid. Uh, he, yeah, his role is Clarkson. I can't remember if it's someone important yeah, or not. Um, but yeah, like again, it's a case of you name it, he's been in it. Like at the very least, okay. a one-off. Yeah, he's been a lot. Um, but yeah, it was nice to see see his face. Wait, who was the actor earlier that was in Justified? Uh, Brendan Barasha, Hemingway. No, wait. No, I think it was Lindbergh. It was Lindbergh. Yeah, yes, you're right. You're right. I wonder if their episodes ever overlapped. Ooh, what did not look like? I didn't see it. That's fine. We don't have to look now. Yeah. Anyway, be interesting. Uh, like the just looking up the credits to like everyone in this episode took me like a couple hours. Just because yeah. I tend to go on deep dives too, it's just there was a lot of people. There was a lot of guests this year, this year, this episode. Yeah, um, they were making up for last episode. Seriously, it's like, oh wait, we didn't use our budget of guest actors and historical <laughs> figures for last last week. Let's just put them all in this one. Um, but yeah, at the club. Uh, Jo- Josephine doesn't really know who are Flynn and Emma. She hasn't seen them. Uh, and Rufus tries to kind of flirts with her, but he obviously bites more than he can chew because she flirts right back and he just freezes. <laughs> and Lucy is kind of giving him like looks and he goes and like, can we not tell Gia about all of this? <laughs> and Lucy just goes like, mm-hmm. So like she she's yeah. she's telling him that no yeah I'm, I'm like sure I won't tell her but you know the exact like the second she has the opportunity they're just gonna talk about all of this it's yeah. gossip gold no this is like my biggest thing with the with Rufus and Gia is that he like hides so much trying to protect her but I'm yeah. like dude just tell her They'll but also like I I get I get the like. <laughs> It doesn't bother me too much because, like, the Rittenhouse stuff, I understand his position just because, you know, he's 
his family's been threatened by Rittenhouse, so he doesn't want Gia to be threatened by Rittenhouse. Uh, this is just more like comedy. Yeah, no, this is because like, but even at even the same like, time, I'm like, yeah, they'd probably laugh at it. It's fine. <laughs> oh, Gia, Gia would tease Rufus to death, mm-hmm. learning about this crush. Probably, yeah. 100%. She would not, like, be threatened by it at all. Um, But yeah, somewhere else, uh, Lindbergh is in a cell. Um, and uh, Flynn asks Carl to get some absinthe because they want something for the pain for Lindbergh. Lind- Lindbergh's dislocated shoulder. And, you know, Emma mentioned rightfully that apparently they have invented Vicodin. I'm sure they've got some like good pain stuff too. Um but they I mean, decide yeah, like, that at this point in time it was just basically like knock you out with some anesthesia. Yeah. That's how um, like uh Zelda Fitzgerald, her she had her baby under anesthesia. Which like wasn't super uncommon. I think one of Queen yeah. Victoria's babies was born under anesthesia. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, they Emma decides to go with Zach to with Zach. See, I want to call him Zach. I don't know why. <laughs> it's Carl. It's like the lawyer guy in uh in Chicago Med. Peter. Peter, Not but Arthur. we we're all calling him Arthur. It's the I don't know why. Um, because like you know she's here, she might as well go to the Dingo Bar and meet some famous people, which you know. Fair. It'd be like yeah. disappointing not to take that opportunity. Uh, we're back at the club, and uh, Josephine and Lucy have a talk. Poor Lucy, like everything's falling apart around her, and she's pretty lost. <laughs> yeah, which I think is interesting. Like this speech she kind of gives. It's not just where she's at with Cahill, but where she's at with the team. Just kind of like that unmoored. Not sure what's going on, like, yeah, not sure well, what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, exactly. Because, like, so you know, first of all, you got Cahill who says, like, she's part of Rittenhouse and eventually she'll come back to it. So that's unsettling, mm-hmm. at least. And then she lost, in a way, Wyatt, like, part of the foundation of her new life. Like, that was her new sense of normal. Yeah. Uh, and like even Rufus kind of turned on her just a little bit when he yeah. learned, and so like this is the second time her world is feeling completely overturned. Like yeah. in the pilot, like her life completely changed, and she kind of rebuilt uh, something new, something solid, or so she or so she thought. With like especially Wyatt and Rufus, and like Gia kind of. I think on the side. Uh and like again, everything's been thrown and the rug's been pulled under her. And so like she really identifies with that lost generation. Yeah. Um, so when like Josephine says, like they're battered, broke down, but ready to stand back up, I think it helps Lucy also see it a different way and that it's not. Yeah completely all completely destroyed like we can stand back up and fight back but yeah they're they're all pretty discouraged and 
each of them like have someone that kind of spruces them back up. Lucy has Josephine, Rufus has that with Hemingway, and Wyatt has that with Denise mm-hmm. too. So Yeah. Mama Denise always there. Uh speaking of, we cut back to uh the black site and Wyatt and Denise has a talk. And she he he talks to Denise that about like the fact that it's kind of weird though. That's a lot of people to bring back pretty much overnight. Mm, yeah. Sounds more like it was planned and figures yeah. that it's not a takeover, it's a coup. Well, I mean, it is a takeover, but it's basically a coup. Yeah. Uh, he kind of like gives a little story of how they kind of took over a village when he was overseas. Yeah. Basically saying like hostiles don't have to be take uh, ha- takeover. Takeovers don't have to be hostile. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of insidious. Yeah. Um, I mean, I do feel like Denise could have put that together too. Yeah. Um, I can I see wanna... her being just like kind of mad that it was happening at the time. That's too. I also, I mean, I'm, I was really surprised they didn't say here. Like, is it written house? They say yeah. it later, but I was surprised they um, didn't say it here. Yeah, but uh, I mean, they probably already have a feeling. Um, yeah. I don't think that was written to be that way, but I kind of want to believe that Denise let Wyatt figure it out just to kind of building back up a little bit. Maybe. I feel like that's something she would do. I don't know if it was written to be that way, but I'm going to go ahead and believe that in my little headcanon. I love Mama Denise. She's something she'd do. Yeah. Uh, we go back to 1923 at the club. And Josephine found someone who's noticed who's recognized Flynn and who's noticed him going into a shabby old chateau. Uh, I love Hemingway, like, through that whole thing. Hemingway is hilarious. Like, he's he's constantly drinking, so I think at, at this point his yeah. blood is about 70% alcohol. Um, and he's <laughs> just blabbering. He's, he's really fun. Um, but we sober right back up because at the same moment, Bam Bam notices Emma at the bar. So they follow her outside, and then there's a sh- shootout. And eventually, bam, bam, goes bang, bang, and night, night. Yeah, yeah I'm not proud of that one. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> I do think it's interesting, too, when Josephine's at the bar. That's similar to kind of how she gathered intelligence during World War II. Mm-hmm. Of, like, you know, her connections and listening and figuring out, like, who's where, what, when. Passing on information. Yeah. Those are good yeah. use of... Bam, bam, dying. Not good. Yeah, I felt so bad, though. Because, like, he was here for such a short time. And I liked him. Yeah. Well, and um, they had to leave him behind, which is kind of... That's awful. Sad, yeah. Um, Because yeah. you know they would... And then the thing, too, is, like, you know they wouldn't do that for Wyatt. Yes. But they know him and they're invested in him. Like Lucy would and Brufus too would like do oh, anything they could to get yeah. him back. But um so in Josephine's apartment. But uh, that's Hemingway, that's also like you were talking about the fact that 
the fact that he's so perfect and like follows the rules that's his yeah. demise because he had a 1920 yeah. something cult uh versus the other side who has a machine gun and way at like new to bend the yeah. rule to yeah but yeah. yeah he he was done a bit dirty because yeah but also okay i'm trying to think back uh have they really they, they haven't really lost like a friend so far like the people they've lost or that have been killed were like some of the historical figures maybe but they were like more like the opposite side but have they really lost like someone who's on their team basically i think that's probably the i mean like kate kate but she was she was a historical figure and she was like yeah, you know, I sort mean, of like, meant yeah, like, to die on their side yes but like yeah no one that they were supposed to bring back yeah so it's that impact too like they've they lost some they lost someone that wasn't supposed to die and yeah it's just that they were working with him yeah. yeah but yeah mm. so we cut to Josephine's apartment um Hemingway overhears Lucy and Rufus saying they need a soldier and, and he's like here I am I'm the man for the job and Rufus face in the background like when he's talking about this is hilarious you know- he's like oh my god it is, it's funny because you know how like People sometimes are voluntold to do something. This is the opposite. It's the guy, he volunteers for it and doesn't take no for an answer. Yeah, he's like, I am it. <laughs> yeah. I'm the yeah, man so you've been the- looking for the whole time. Yeah, I'm completely uh, like drunk out of my mind, but I'm it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so in the chateau, they find the uh, place very empty. It's basically abandoned and yeah. haunted um, mention yeah 2.0. very much that uh and so Hemingway has been partaking quite heavily all night and starts making his way back up so he's like I need to go outside somebody come with me and Rufus cracks me up here because he's like him and Lucy are arguing <laughs> he's like you're a big literary fan <laughs> but uh which makes me wonder if they were ad-libbing that back and forth I would not but, be um, surprised Anyway, Rufus is chosen, leaving Lucy all by herself. Seriously? Bad idea. Do, do we need to say it again? Right? Don't um, you guys yeah. learn? You don't split up. It's never good. It always ends up with someone being kidnapped, usually Lucy. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> so far. Stop. <laughs> So at Mason Industries, uh, Cahill now walks in. So I think that gives us an idea exactly who the yep. NSA is being controlled by. And he's talking to Mason who asks, can you finally tell me what your obsession is basically with Lucy? And he's like, oh, she's my daughter, which I think surprises Mason a little bit and kind of yeah. worries him. Um, he has a lot of emotion on his face there. Yeah, I think. But, you know, um, but definitely at- looks like Rittenhouse is taking over. Yeah. Something I really like, like, you know how Mason, uh, he was so upset about Denise uh, keeping him out of, like, everything that was happening. Uh, And you see it, especially, like, in the scene with Neville earlier. Like, he's 
it's really proud and like really smug about being back in like the good mm-hmm. grace of whoever's in charge. But yeah, this one kind of takes him yeah. by surprise. By surprise. Yeah. Um, I guess he decided he could tell him because Denise was out of the picture. So not that he, I mean, I feel like he would have known Lucy would go to Denise too. Maybe he doesn't realize how close they are. I don't know. Yeah. Um, know. But back in 1927, to the surprise of exactly no one, Lucy has been kidnapped by Carl, <laughs> uh, who brings her to Flynn. Um, and in order for her to for in order for him to not kill Lindbergh, she decides to go and talk to him and try to change his views. When she gets there, she's so frustrated that everyone seems to know more about her. Because like Cahill says, No, you're gonna come back. And then Flynn is like, Well, I got your journal, so I know exactly what you're thinking or what you're gonna do. And she's just done with it. She's like she feels so out of control. Yeah. Yeah. When, I mean like Flynn knows everything. She's mad because Bam Bam just died. Mm-hmm. And Flynn really doesn't seem to care. He doesn't no. seem to care if it was Wyatt either. Like he Yeah. Doesn't have a care. Oh means to an end. Yeah. And so that kind of ticks her off, I think, too. And then she goes that's, into this. Yeah. And that's probably why okay. she she really volunteers. Because Flynn doesn't really ask her to do much of anything. She it's really like her idea. Um mm-hmm. and I think it's it's her way of trying to change something. Because like if she can't change what happens to Lindbergh, she's gonna be able to change what happens to her. At least in her mind. Yeah. Um yeah, it is. And so I think that's what she's hoping for here too. Um, but also going in like this is where she learns Lindbergh's written house. Mm-hmm. And so um, she kind of goes in knowing there may be in a similar situation of him not wanting to be part of written house the way she is. Um, and that's kind of what it seems like. There's some things during that speech that are kind of yuck. Like yeah. Calls the Cahills a pure blood. Pure blood. Yeah. yeah it's um, like, oh, wow. Okay. And like Lucy saying and I'm then, written house too. It just feels so icky too. We yeah, know she doesn't which, I mean, mean it. She's trying to like get him. Yeah, yeah, yeah she's trying but, to like get him to trust her. Yeah, because it's not technically wrong. We know she doesn't mean it as in like I agree with what they're doing and I want to help them. Yeah, but it just gives me like chills in in my spine, really. Um, yeah. Also, I think it's interesting the way Lindbergh uh, talks about his dad. Reminds me a bit of how yeah. John Rittenhouse was talking, because it's always like, dad says. Yeah. yeah. You have to listen to him, which is kind of how Cahill, I think, expects Lucy to react eventually. Yep. Of just falling in line. But he also, I thought, was interesting here is they kind of, he kind of frames this idea that they use their own members as like the social bad guys. Mm-hmm to distract from what they're doing in other places. Um, so I thought that was an interesting spin. Yeah, and it's it's also... It sort of makes sense, because if you control both behind the scene and the scapegoat, the scapegoat can't mm-hmm. won't defend themselves, so they will really yeah. stay the scapegoat. Like, there will be no doubt. Yeah, yeah. It, it all falls into place where they want it to. Yep. Um, we also get a little bit of a background yh- yeah. story on Lucy, which uh, I like this yeah, one. It's it's a bit of mother. 
Yeah, it's a bit of a callback to the pilots. Because, you know, Amy was saying, like, stop worrying about disappointing mom, make your own future. And I think it's probably, like, one of the things she was referring to that we didn't know at the time. Yeah. And, like, it's interesting here because we see Rittenhouse now expecting her basically the sa- to do basically the same thing her mother expected her to do, of just falling in line with what they want. Yeah. So she's getting it from both sides one's just trying to you know evilly control history yeah it's yeah and again it's a great parallel between um Mm -hmm. you know Lindbergh's situation and lucy's yeah so uh back to rufus and hemingway they're both really confused of where lucy could have gone uh, since the whole place is empty and it's Rufus normal you left her alone she obviously has been kidnapped like it's yeah it goes together it's like, not that where hard else she go <laughs> she decided to take a stroll uh, Hemingway yeah and so basically Hemingway has this like little moment and gives Rufus his bottle of whatever he's drinking and the response afterwards between Heming or the kind of conversation afterwards between Hemingway and Rufus is really good but yeah I just thought that was like I don't know I thought the emotion behind both of their reactions of like where everything's coming from with Hemingway like needing to be this adventurous man who fights and trying to get Rufus to like follow with that he you know it's interesting how all that kind of comes together but then they realize and it, it's also it uh, also gives Hemingway like seeping through the floorboard yeah it also gives Hemingway like a bit more depth because like so far he's it really does, being yeah. like the dilettante type of guy yeah. who's just drinking and takes life very lightly yeah. and so we get we get the reason why yeah, and you see that there's yeah. a lot of pent yeah, up there's a lot of trauma pent up behind that yeah yeah uh, from what he's seen and what he's had to do and things like that. Because mm-hmm. um, I can't imagine even as an ambulance driver on the front, he didn't see a oh. lot of really awful things. Even I'm sure. He was there. I am sure. Um. So uh, Rufus at some point drops the bottle that he was given and they realize that the liquid is seeping through the floorboards and that's when they realize, oh, there's catacombs under here. Yep. Because Hemingway talked about death and dying was everywhere earlier. And uh, they realized she must have gone down into the catacombs or been taken. Yeah. Also, side note here, I really like Rufus's wardrobe in this episode. He has this, like, great checkered scarf. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, so... And actually, speaking of, like, Lucy, when she doesn't have the coat, like, in the catacombs, like, with Flynn, like, her hair, makeup, and the dress she has, it's gorgeous, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And Dave looked good, too. Again, the short time Abigail there. Spencer looks great <laughs> at in any era. Like, it's... I don't it's know. Really there's unfair. been some hair that I didn't agree with. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, like, it's really unfair. The Alamo how... hair. What was the Alamo hair? The Sarah Plain and Tall hair part down the middle bun in the back. It was bad. Anyway, <laughs> it changed after she got to the Alamo. Oh, okay. But when she first got there. I forgot. I completely forgot. I can't picture it. I don't know. I went on like a whole five minute rant about it. I remember that. <laughs> but uh, 
Yeah. So, uh-huh. but we cut back to Lucy and Lindbergh, and Lucy gets Lindbergh to tell her that he was supposed to meet a man when he had landed, a man named Julian Charve. Uh, Charve. Uh, Flynn, who's been listening the whole time, uh, charges Emma to listen for more, and he goes to look for the man. Um, there's something about Emma that's just not sitting quite right with me. And I couldn't say exactly what it is. But there's something that's not quite right. But anyway, uh, we go back to Denise and Wyatt, and they realize the Rittenhouse has taken over Mason Industries. And Denise informs Wyatt that creepy, creepy Rittenhouse dude is actually Lucy's dad. Um, Denise tells Wyatt to fight to get Lucy back, get back to Lucy and uh, Rufus. Uh, but Wyatt is pretty down on himself at this point and beating himself up. And other agents come in, uh, so Denise has to leave. But once alone, we realize she has slipped Wyatt a paperclip. Yeah, actually, like, um, I, so I, I would. Too, he talks about mate. Go ahead. No, no, it's, 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 say what you're saying. Oh, they're in this whole thing. He's talking about, like, what's meant to be. Mm-hmm. And so, like, this is like, he's begrudgingly decided fate exists. Yep. He doesn't like it. But he can't deny it any longer because he can't save Jessica. So fate is real and it hates him. Yep. Uh, but yeah, like the paperclip, you can see actually, look, I, I watched the scene a couple of times. Um, when Denise gives her gives him the confession, to say, she takes out the paperclip from him and she puts it down like next to it. And she just doesn't take oh, it yeah. back up. And when she wakes, yeah. when she gets up to leave, she like she looks at the paperclip. She looks at Wyatt, like me. Eh, I got oh, yeah. you that little gift. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very pointed look. look, look. look. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Flynn goes to Charvet's house uh, and makes his way inside. Uh, he has a gun held on him. In the catacombs, Rufus and Hemingway are getting closer to Flynn's hideout. And Hemingway's being kind of loud, but then they use that as kind of an idea to trick Carl yeah. uh, towards them, and they take him out. Uh, they find Lucy and Lindbergh. And I like, on like way out, after he themselves. knocks after he knocks down the guy, he's like, "I need a moment," because like you think he's gonna bar, he's gonna yeah, he's about to barf again, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, but yeah, so they find Lucy and Lindbergh, uh, but on their way out, Emma stops them, but then kind of lets them pass, which. First of all, where does Flynn and his crew get their outfits from? Because they don't have a, wa- a warehouse. But oh, like anyway, to me, it's easy. Carl, Carl, like honestly, interesting this time. My my guess is that they get out of the mothership, stole from a th- and they steal or kill like whatever person they get to first, first and just and they get come their across. clothes. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't so. think they're just bothered too much with that. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. Um. But okay, just, I'm just like Rufus has it, a gun here. Go ahead. I'm just gonna mention when Rufus gets to Lucy, they have a sweet little hug. There's a reason I mentioned it for later. It's a cute hug. It's a cute. I know, it's a, but it's uh, a cute, very friendly hug. Yeah. So, um, but Rufus does have a gun here, which I think is interesting because Emma stops them. And they kind of focus on it as like he's willing to use it, even though he knows her, like he recognizes her. He, they talk back and mm-hmm. forth. But um, I just she doesn't seem like the person to be threatened. So she goes along with it so easily, which I thought was just kind of 
odd. Like I said, there's something that's odd about her that doesn't quite sit right with me. But, um, and I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing that she's like that yet. But anyway, so back at the dark site, Wyatt gets out of his shackles and then kind of MacGyver's his way out using a breaker box that is in the wrong room. Like, why would you have a breaker box? Yeah, and I honestly, I didn't even, I don't really understand what he used, like, for the, like, it's part of the foot of the chair, and there's metal things that he can pull out, I don't know. Wait. Undid the paper clip and stuck it into the rubber so that he could stick oh, it into the electrical thing. Oh, yeah. I don't know enough about electricity to know how he broke the breaker box. I, I, no, same. He did. Yeah. Somehow he did. Uh, but anyway, uh, back to 1927, Rufus, Lucy, and Hemingway take Lindbergh back to Josephine, who will help him start a new life. Um, and Hemingway shares some more words of wisdom with Rufus as they say their goodbyes. Which uh, Rufus again goes, maybe just don't tell this to Gia. Yeah. Which I'm like, why? Just tell her. Just tell her the whole thing. Uh, he's just, he's just embarrassed, I think, a little bit. But yeah. like, I can already picture like Gia and Lucy just debriefing over a glass of wine. Yeah. That's totally maybe like... not after this mission. This mission was like a, a no, like they girls night gonna... after wine thing. <laughs> yeah, they're they're gonna need some time after. Like, we'll get there. We'll get there. They'll they'll have occasions, yeah. but like more in season two, I think at this point. Um, but yeah, at the end there, like it really seems like Lucy was successful in changing Lindbergh's mind, and that he's gonna yeah stay away. Well, because the way they frame it in this episode, he doesn't believe those things that he's mm-hmm. well known and condemned for yeah. later. But um, and so. Yeah. It's it's gonna yeah. be pretty easy for her to change his mind because that's like he doesn't want to go along with it anyway. But um, and she wants to hope too, because again, if yeah, she wants he can get away from right in the house. Yeah. She can, yeah, yeah. Um, so back at the dark, dark site, Wyatt escapes. Um, he really says quick. sorry to the guy he has to knock yeah. out. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So the lifeboat gets back to Mason and. <laughs> Gets back to Mason Industries, um, and they notice right away that all the new agents welcome them, along with Agent <laughs> Neville. I like at this point, like, like, oh my god, what is going on? We changed yeah. history. We changed history. <laughs> this is not good. Which, yeah, Which, it's it's I like love a good the reaction. Wave that, like... Yeah, but uh, I love the little wave between Gia and Rufus oh. here too. <laughs> um, so they take they take the debrief upstairs and Neville is just a ray of sunshine. He's like questioning them of like, wait, you need to like be exact and like how many people did this and how many people did this, which is funny because like this is probably how things should have been handled the whole yes. time. The same way like Bam Bam should have been how Wyatt acted the whole time of like like serious on like mm-hmm. exact debriefings and things like that. So it's just funny that this episode, like, they demonstrate how it should have been versus how we've been seeing it go. Um, I like also, like, yeah, the, so, you're free to go. Like, weren't we free to go before? Yeah, well, because usually, like, you know, they're like, oh, what changed? Let's go Google it. And then they yeah. go look it up. And then they're like, oh, no, we have a school named after us now. <laughs> yeah. Let's go have but, a drink. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um. At home later, Lucy uh, hits the books only to realize Lindbergh did all of the same things that he did in history before she talked to him. 
Um, yeah. Carol comes in and then they talk a bit. Uh, Lucy gets a text, but before she can leave, Carol kind of stops her and is like, what do we do when we have all these things going on? And she's like, oh, you know, da, 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 write it down. Here's a journal. It's, such a, it's such a teacher way she has to talk to her daughter, it. too. It's like, what do we do in our fitness family yeah. when we have too many thoughts? We write them down. I know, yeah. Yeah. But like, yeah. But, uh, she's so, she's I do so... think it's interesting because it's like, what? And I was like talking about like about the, 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 yeah, she's so, she's but, so uh, she does recognize, she recognizes the journal too. Mm-hmm. Which I think brings me to one of my, and she tries. She tries to keep a straight face because, like, she can't. She can't explain to her mm-hmm. mom why it's so. It's so. It's so mm-hmm. big, but yeah, it's a big doomy thing. Which means at some point, yeah. Which I think at some point that means she has to learn why the journal is important, and so I feel like at some point she doesn't write in everything until she finds out something important. Helen has blanked her screen. <laughs> Which means keep talking. I'm on the right track. <laughs> no, it means I, do, no, it like, means she, I don't want to give any reaction. That's all. But she has, like, I like, this would just be my reaction, I guess. If I received something knowing that this thing was going to land in the hands of Flynn and I could just not write in it and it wouldn't exist, then I wouldn't write in it. And so something has to happen for her to be like, Oh, we really need this thing, which means at some point he has to go to the future and get this from Lucy, who already has it prepared because she knows he needs it. So they do work together at some point. So I'm interested to see how that plays out. We'll see. Or it's somebody else needs it, and so she has to do it for that, and it ends up in the hands of Flint. I don't know. But anyway... I also think it's interesting here that Lindbergh went back. And so it's kind of like everybody eventually goes back. So what is going on there? Like, what are they being told? Does Rittenhouse like go to them and threaten them? Like what happens? But I think that's interesting. They I wouldn't put back. it past them. Yeah. And then uh, we cut to the warehouse, which is the text that we received. And they're waiting. Wyatt enters. And... Lucy launches herself at him. And that, my friend, is a very long, not just friend kind of hug. There's a big difference between the Rufus hug earlier. That was like one, one and a half Mississippis at most. And then the (laughs) hug with Wyatt. And I counted. That is a full six Mississippis. Okay? There's a big hug difference, and there's there's like some, you know, you kind of burrow into someone's shoulder. It's not it's not a friend hug. It it, it is not a friend hug from either side. Yeah, I also think it's really funny in this clip because when he's talking about fate, he's like it's fate or the force or something, which is funny because yeah. he voices Anakin Skywalker. Yeah, when he mentions the force, <laughs> it's funny. Um, one thing I love in this clip too is. I mean, we've talked. It's not. It's not really like Rufus was a bit off when he kind of turned a little bit on Lucy when he learned about her mm-hmm. dad. But like Wyatt here is supportive of Lucy, like right away, right away. He has yeah. no doubt about her, and she's like, just because this is your dad does not mean it's you. 
Yeah, which I think they already had that hashed out with Flynn, like the early episodes. Uh, I yeah. think it was Watergate that they hashed everything mm -hmm. out. I feel like that's already been like between them, they've got it figured out. And so he's just like, I know you weren't keeping this. It just happened to you. And yeah, yeah I'm okay with it and hope you're okay. But um, <laughs> also like where he's, when he's talking about fate, she's like, you sound like a crazy person. And he's like, I sound like you. The smiles. This is a really cute exchange. The smiles. Yeah. I love it. They're so cute. Oh. Yeah, but, but yeah, they're definitely gearing up for the finale, like of the season. Yes, you can. You, you can, can tell see it's definitely wrapping up. We're, like we just have yeah. one episode between now and the finale, so yeah, yeah. it's definitely wrapping up. Um, yeah, getting close to the first, the, the first. Yeah, and no, technically, crazy. technically, there's two finale because there's there's a season two finale before the movie, so yeah, that's okay, the first yeah. finale. Because, like, the, the movie came out, I think, close to a full year, like, nine months. I forgot exactly the timeline. Um, There's, like, it's definitely, there's definitely a hiatus between the season two and the movie. Uh, yeah. Season two finale, yeah, May 2018 to December 2018. Not as long as I thought, but still. So, yeah. Close to your first finale. I know, it's exciting. I know. Uh, but yeah, that's where the episode ends, and that's also where we leave out for this episode. Do you have... So what, what are your... First of all... I think I told you, you a few theories throughout yeah. the episode. Um, overall episode, I thought it was really good. They packed like so much in there, but it all made sense. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's funny because... This episode has always been one of the episodes that I, not that I didn't like, but I like less than other episodes. And again, focusing on it and like kind of dissecting everything that happens and how mm -hmm. it it matters. I really liked it. Yeah, I like it. I definitely like it better knowing the history behind everybody. It's, it makes it interesting of how they will everything together. Yeah, I think. Yeah, also, they, like I said, that I said a few theories throughout the episode of like what's happening next. So but... yeah, you got the the journal. Yeah, and obviously something's going on with. Uh, why they chose Wyatt, and what how Rittenhouse gets their people back in. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It's. And I wonder if there's any connection there with NSA now being taken over by Rittenhouse too, and Flynn's discovery. Which I mean, NSA, I guess they would. I mean, be a good one to be plugged into. It's not. Yeah. It's not irrealistic to to imagine that Rittenhouse has, at least a foot, in basically in every, every agency yeah. or every government thing yeah. in the entire. And I feel like not just the U.S., probably all over the world, really. Yeah. So, yeah. But no, it was, it was again, like, they they always do such a good job about, like, picking what historical figure 
they're gonna they're Good gonna test, meet yeah. uh and there's there's always some really really interesting parallels and it, it fits yeah. with the the real history too like other because like this one other than the fact that Lindbergh's father is supposed to be dead at this point um mm -hmm. like everything well, even works like well Josephine Baker like helping him get a new life I want to say I remember reading that she also like helped people get visas out of France during World War II yeah and, and so like, I, that even fits again she, like you know you said she was getting a lot of information during World War II and whatnot so it's even if she wasn't the one like she you can even if it wasn't true in in real the real history you can mm -hmm. easily theorize that she had the contacts to do it yeah 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 really good but yeah i guess that's yeah, that's so, about it for today yeah so uh follow us on twitter slash x and instagram uh we are bit lifeboat on twitter and back in the lifeboat on instagram and threads uh, rate and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Amazon, Podbean, wherever you listen. Uh, it helps our show grow. It helps people find us. Uh, spread the word to any of your family and friends who are Timeless fans so they can reminisce and watch along with us for the first time. Our next episode will be covering Season 1, Episode 15, titled Public Enemy Number 1, uh, which my that's guess gonna... is are going back to like the 30s because that's like Al Capone, John Dillinger, Pretty, Bo hmm. Pretty Boy Floyd, Babyface Nelson. That's public enemy number one. Yeah, and this one, um, so we're we're gonna be taking a break, a little break over the yeah over Christmas, the holidays. We'll uh, so we'll come back in January. Yeah, early in January. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I'm interested to see that because I mean, Chicago in the 30s was a wild place. I'm assuming that's where they're going. <laughs> but uh you'll see in anyway, about like so, two minutes when you yeah, can I'll put see on the you episode like 30 minutes <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh watch and email us your thoughts at back in the lifeboat pod at gmail.com and then shout out to our friend manny who is editing and producing the show with us he's awesome and uh and we so thank you guys for listening yeah and because this is our last show of the year um happy holidays whichever holidays you celebrate yeah, and even if you don't celebrate happy timeless day happy timeless <laughs> day that heather, participate in. Yeah, heather is absolutely forbidden i'm so sorry i really wish you could um so we should yes earlier <laughs> yes it's my fault i i had the idea in mind for a bit and i didn't act on it for a while uh, no, so yes, on it's uh, on December twenty first. It is Timeless Day, if you know, you know. Uh, and Sean Ryan has come out and say they're going to do some stuff, uh, at least on social media throughout the day. So make sure to follow uh, Sean Ryan. Follow us too. We'll uh, I know at least in the morning. Um, I will follow whatever is happening that day. Um, yeah, and I've been banned from checking twitter that day yeah anything any social media you just delete <laughs> yeah delete um if you Which, make it even on instagram i've only i've only come across one account that i've ever mentioned timeless on instagram and it was a history account that just happened to mention timeless so don't 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 i just, think i'll be safe don't my algorithm is not geared that way good 
Um, let's keep it that way. Um, but yeah, everyone, happy holidays, happy new year, and we'll see you in January. Happy holidays, guys. Bye. Yep. Bye.